0: we mm-hmm. Hi everybody, this is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 14 of X-Lapsed. Today, we're going to be discussing the Marauders. Now, I've said it before that uh, last fall, when I read my, you know, the three <laughs> Dawn of X books that I actually managed to read, uh, Marauders number one was uh, my favorite of the three. Uh, that was X-Men, Marauders, and Excalibur. And Marauders was, uh, I don't want to say far and away my favorite, but... Uh, it was kind of a dark horse, you know I was not expecting to dig it And I actually came away from it Really, really enjoying it uh, Let's hop right on into the issue This is Marauder's number one December 2019 cover date Stories called I'm on a Boat Written by Jerry Duggan Art by Matteo Lali Colors by Federico Blee uh, letters by VCs Corey Petit, design Tom Muller, the head of X is Jonathan Hickman. Edits Chris Robinson joins White and Cebulski, and this was a $5 book, $4.99 USD. On sale October 23rd, 2019. Now we opened sometime back in the not-so-long-ago in Central Park. Storm and Nightcrawler were ushering some mutants, including Kitty Pride, through a gateway home to Krakoa. Now, I know that the X-Men had set up shop in Central Park uh, during one of the volumes I sat out, uh, so maybe this is wrapping up that loose end. And I'm going to assume that this scene, just just this scene, is probably happening at some point during the House of X, Powers of X event, uh, since it is just a little while ago. Um, I'm trying to think of when Central Park was established. It might have been... whatever the, Whatever the name of the... Of the uh, like one shot that led into the Blue and Gold book Was it X-Men Prime or was it just X-Men Gold Zero? It was one of those um, I think that's where they set up the Central Park uh, digs there But uh, Anyway, Kitty goes to step through and Well, Krakoa don't play that She splats right on into the door Kitty cannot access the gateway Now with a bloody and perhaps broken nose Kitty stands back and starts cursing while Aurora and Kurt look pretty shocked at the entire scene. So, let's meet our marauding cast before we go any further here. We've got Kitty Pride, Lockheed, Storm, Nightcrawler, Iceman, Wolverine, Emma Frost, Bishop, and Pyro. After this, we get a two page spread of creds, and uh, the most interesting part of this is seeing that Mr. Hickman is now the head of X. Uh, it's nice to have a uh, guiding force. For this uh, family of books Especially when that guiding force's name Doesn't rhyme with Crendis From here an info page It's a log written by Kitty Or Kate Pride I I don't think I'll ever be able to call her Kate Um, Covering a six day voyage On a borrowed slash stolen boat You know she's got to get to Krakoa Somehow right Day one, she stole a boat in San Diego, and she's pretty apologetic about it. She's, you know, hoping that the real owner will eventually get their boat back. On day two, she proclaims that she's the captain now, which uh, reminds me of a show on Sirius Yacht Rock Radio where they bring in a guest DJ who will often proclaim that they are the captain now. Day three, she's dipping into Logan's stash of booze. Day four, Lockheed's having the time of his life and is eating a lot of secret is... Day five, Kitty wonders a bit about why Krakoa has denied her, and she worries about being useless and having to rely on others for transport. Day six, Kitty comes around to the idea that keeping a log is dumb and a waste of time. She's sorry that she stole the boat, but she's no longer all that interested in seeing it return to its rightful owner. Now, back to comics. Lockheed deposits a seagull's wing into Kitty's hands, which, uh... It's kind of treated like when your cat might leave, like, a dead mouse or a dead bird at your uh, doorstep. You know, you, you tell yourself it's a gift, and then you just thank the cat for being a, you know, a good boy or a good girl. All the while, you're trying to think of, like, that one thing in your house that you'd be okay throwing out because you're going to use it to try and scoop up, you know, the little dead thing. Kitty then realizes, hey, if there are seagulls here, that means we're probably getting close to making landfall. And no sooner does she realize this than we see her little boat arrive. And uh, she asks Kirkoa what she might have done to take it off. Kitty steps onto the beach, which is full of Kirkoan gateways. She's greeted by a youngster, who uh, asks if she's the girl who can't use the gates, to which she is rather displeased. Then, Iceman shows up. Before they can chat, however, Logan busts into the scene, wanting to know if Kitty brought the stuff. He rushes into the drink and swims out to the dinghy to procure a bunch of booze. So... Can alcohol not travel via Krakoan gateway? Is is that a, a thing that, uh... Is that like a, a rule we didn't know yet? Or, or maybe it's a rule we're supposed to know. Is Krakoa a dry county? Or mutant island? A dry mutant island thing? I don't know. Now, Kitty, upon seeing Wolverine still alive after being burninated during the Mother Mold mission, is both relieved and shocked that the Five were able to resurrect him. So, I'm guessing this is probably... Toward the tail end of House of X, Powers of X, or maybe this part is at the end of is you know, on the other side, you know, our side now. From here, an info page, and it's Logan's shopping list. He wants ribs, he wants Canadian Club Whiskey, he wants booze, he wants suds, he wants Cubano sandwiches, he wants some Dapper Dude pomade, and he wants some coffee. It's a cute bit, but a whole page on this? It's not that cute. Uh, Iceman and Kitty they chat for a bit, mostly about whether or not Kitty's got a home here. Bobby tells her she's got to plant a flower or something. Then, Bobby, upon noticing that there's zero traffic coming from one of the gateways, decides to head on in to see if there's anything amiss on the other side. Kitty, now alone, is psychically or telepathically contacted by Emma Frost. They have a meeting of sorts in the uh, back of Emma's car, And the first question from Ms. Frost is why Kitty hasn't told the gang to call her Kate. Kitty says, despite all the changes the X-Men have undergone, that might be a step too far, and I agree. Emma frames Kitty, or Kate, screw it, Kitty's inability to use the Krakoan gateways as an opportunity. Now, you might remember we've got those mutant miracle drugs, right? And how there are some nations that refuse to sign that treaty that recognizes Krakoa and all that. Well, that's where the black market comes into play, and right now, Emma needs a captain for this Hellfire Trading Company. I I thought Sebastian Shaw was supposed to be handling this back alley stuff, but we'll let it go. Kitty assumes that she wasn't Emma's first choice, and obviously she wasn't. Uh, Storm actually turned Frost down first. Emma shows Kitty a big old boat. Uh, they'll do the uh, backroom stuff, but also liberate mutants as they go So they'll, they'll deal with the drugs and they'll pick up, uh, you know, trapped mutants Or just mutants that can't make their way to Krakoa for whatever reason Emma points to a couple of current problems concerning Krakoan gateways We uh, go somewhere, we go to North Vinen, which I don't know if it's a real place or not Apologies to any Vinan folk there, if, if it is real now, the gateway has been cordoned off by a family that runs the country. We go over to Brazil, and several gates are being guarded by what look like red-skinned warwolves, or maybe whatever the X-Men fought off during Second Coming, whatever those things were. Maybe those were warwolves, too, I don't know. Then, the really important stuff, wardrobe. Emma tells Kitty that she'll, quote, ravish in red. So did we just find our final chair at the at the quiet council, the the Red King or Queen? Could that be our kitty? I guess we'll find out. Now this telepathic meeting adjourns, and we rejoin Kitty on the beach. Lockheed is having a, he's eating an entire crab and having just a heck of a time. We next rejoin Iceman as he's arrived on the other side of that trafficless gateway. He's in Russia. And from the looks and sounds of it Maybe Russia in the mid-1980s I'm not a very worldly guy But I don't Do, do people still call Russia Mother Russia? Or is that something that uh, I could be just talking up my ass here I don't know It just feels very, very uh, 80s Anyway We're in Vladivostok Vladivostok, Russia Where Iceman is confronted by the Russian armed forces Who are being led by a fellow named Phobos now, Phobos is looking very wildstormy here. He wears an outfit that makes him look like he should be, like, trying to shut down Gen 13 or something. Uh, he blasts Bobby with his blaster, which dampens his mutant power. So, Bobby's ice melts away, leaving just Bobby and his bloomers. He runs back through the gateway just in the nick of time, as the rest of the soldiers began to open fire at him. Back on the beach, Kitty is getting completely wasted. Bobby explains the situation in Mother Russia, and Kitty's all... Well, get on my boat, let's go fight them Uh, Storm shows up and Kitty invites her along for the sail as well From here we shift scenes to Taipei, Taiwan A woman is holding court pontificating for the people not to trust the mutants She claims that her husband touched one of the Krakoan gates and vanished So, uh, is her husband a mutant then? I don't know Anyway, she accuses the mutants of taking him and vows not to rest until he's returned. Now, among this crowd of folks is Bishop. And after they scatter, he approaches the woman. Her name is Mrs. Zhao. He introduces himself and says he's from Krakoa, and he asks for a moment to talk. She turns him down. Bishop informs Xavier of his progress, or lack thereof, before calling it a night. Back to the boat. While on the high seas, Pyro, who'd been stowed away, wakes up. Now, he was one of the first resurrectees, which to him was both an honor and an insult, because uh, he wasn't exactly happy about being used as a lab rat. And so he figured he'd go ahead and steal himself a boat and leave the island. And it just so happened that it was this boat he was trying to steal before he fell asleep. Storm informs Pyro that he's now drafted, but he's got a promise to follow the law of Krakoa, which is, of course, kill no man. I feel like Pyro is the sort of character who's died a few times. Um, Bobby makes a comment. He's he's surprised because this is the real one, which, that's a beat that I don't remember in the slightest. Were there, were there Pyro clones? Maybe there were. I, I cannot recall off the top of my head. And the only Pyro I knew died of the Legacy Virus, but uh, I'm sure I've seen him again since, so Lord only knows. Meanwhile, in Russia... Phobos radios into his superiors that there haven't been any mutants since the Omega Iceman came through, and then he laments that he still wants to fight. You know, he's like, hey, they're not coming back, and I, I really, really want to fight. Well, be careful what you wish for, pal, because our crew has arrived. Now, this whole scene here plays out kind of like a, like a sizzle reel for our new take on Kitty Pride. Uh, she is completely ruthless here. We see her biffing dudes in the throat, pistol whipping with swiped guns using said swiped gun to shoot a shoulder, shoot, shoot a soldier in the kneecap, then phasing said swiped gun into two other soldiers' legs before unfazing it. This is really brutal, and, uh, gotta be honest, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. This is some hardcore stuff. A tank approaches, and so, with a sigh, Kitty phases inside, where she pulls the pin from a smoke grenade before phasing out the other end. Is really just like a half dozen pages of uh, kiddie kicking butt here. Um, So, I mean, if that's what you want to see, you're getting it. If you don't, well, you're getting it anyway. Pyro asks for a light to which Lockheed breathes some flame. Pyro uses this to, well, from the looks of it, incinerate the Russian soldiers. Um, I mean, if we're still sticking to this kill-no-man edict, it's like maybe there are some fates worse than death, right? Um, (laughs) This is... Pretty brutal. Uh, these uh, these characters here. I gotta say, I do appreciate that Pyro's powers here are depicted correctly. You know, he cannot create fire, only control it. Because a lot of X writers seem to forget that. Anyway, with the job done, Kitty approaches the Krakoan gateway that Phobos and co were blocking to see if she's finally earned passage. She is not. The people of Russia run up to thank our team, to which Kitty turns to them and vows that, for the mutants of the world who cannot make it to Krakoa, the Marauders will bring them home. From here, we shift on to later. We're back on the boat and Kitty's writing in her log. Back up on deck, she approaches Storm to inform her that she, Kitty, that is, cannot live on Krakoa. This doesn't seem to phase Storm. She understands and and probably expected this. Storm does mention that she doesn't quite dig the name Marauders, which is completely understandable. And Kitty just says she, you know, she was on the spot when she came up with it, you know? so she, she just came up with the best thing she could. Kitty asks Storm if she can count on her, and Aurora gives the big thumbs up. However, with a caveat, Storm will only deal with Kitty, not Emma Frost. Kitty understands. We wrap up with Pride uh, telepathically telling Emma that their project is a go. And she actually says that she agrees to both of Frost's propositions, the second of which I'm assuming has something to do with Red Royalty, but I'm guessing that'll be made clearer as we go. So, we've got our team, and we wrap up with Kitty telling everyone to call her Kate. I probably won't be doing that. Uh, We close out the issue with a... Hey, More of some of my favorite Hoxpox info pages. It's the Sinister Secrets, numbers 11 through 15. Now, Secret 11, let's get into these. Whispers of a mutant getting a big offer, but it's one that won't last. And also that they weren't the first or second choice. So, that's almost gotta be referring to Kitty getting the offer to be the Red Whatever in the Quiet Council's Hellfire Quarter, I'm, I'm guessing. It says here that it won't last, which... Let's be honest. This is current year Marvel. Chances are we're going to get a reboot within the year, anyway. So it's what are you going to do? Secret number twelve. A warning about a about shipping mutant medicine in the Red Sea. Um, I'm really not sure, but it sounds suitably forged, foreshadowy, right? I mean, maybe this is just a little glimpse into the future, a glimpse into a story that's yet to be told. Uh, I guess not everything needs is like a riddle that needs to be solved. Secret number 13. Not every Hellfire alumnus has been invited in. I'm going to assume this is another bit of foreshadowing because I'm trying to think over who we've seen so far. I know we saw Selene. Sage is on the island. Uh, Sure, we saw him. We saw Frost. We haven't seen Donald Pierce, and we haven't seen Harry Leland yet. I don't know if this is foreshadowing their returns. Uh, We'll wait and see. Secret 14. Something about sheet-wearing humans and looky-loos crowding the gates. Another one I'm not sure about. Uh, I mean, sheet-wearing humans is clearly supposed to make us think of something, right? Um, And looky-loos at the gates, maybe the Krakoan gates? Could that be a reference to the scene in Taiwan? Maybe. Secret 15. It sounds like there might be a second secret boat involved in the mutant drug drug trade, even. Easy for me to say. So, these pretty much all feel like foreshadowing, which makes them. It really it makes them a little less fun than the original ten uh, sinister secrets. Though it does give us plenty to keep our eyes peeled for, if uh, if I remember, <laughs> as we work through these issues. Um, yeah, the ten that we got during Hoxpox were a little bit more fun than this uh, because it felt like it felt like you could use your X knowledge and your X experience to maybe not so much solve them, but, you know, put some pieces in place here where, I don't know, these are, these are a little bit more liquid, a little bit more just, yeah, they, they, you know, the things that are coming, it's, and it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to predict sometimes. And I, I've proven over the past, uh, you know, 13 episodes that it's, uh, it's pretty hard to predict things and not, not come across as woefully wrong. Um, And that is a wrap for this issue The next one we'll discuss is Excalibur number one But now let's talk about the book we just read First, Kitty, Kate, Ms. Pride Uh, Now they've, they've tried to turn Kitty into like a tough girl on several occasions But up until now they really haven't ever stuck the landing I feel like like every time they give her like like a shorter haircut, they they give her this new tough personality. Um, I remember the Claremont return, uh, and then X Men Gold that launch are two examples that come am- come to mind immediately. Here though, they're handling it a little bit differently, um, and maybe maybe a little too extreme for my tastes. Um, it's certainly effective. I mean, seeing her just decimate the Russian soldiers, I. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you figure like Storm would be like, "Hey, yep, calm down a little bit. Maybe cool it." Uh, I mean, she really messed those dudes up, phasing the gun into the two guys' legs, fusing them together. That's that's some screwed up stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's very very brutal and uh, very extreme. And uh, I really don't know how I feel about it. Um... Maybe I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I do like the uh, the wrinkle here that uh, for whatever reason Kitty can't use the gateways. And uh, okay, what does it say about me? Where my first thought upon seeing Kitty not make her way through the gateway was that Marvel was trying to establish that Kitty wasn't a mutant so they could uh, cram her into whatever the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie was as a, you know as what's-his-face's love interest. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that, that was what I was thinking here. I'm like, oh no, she's going to be a miracle now, or she's going to be an inhuman. <laughs> it's like once bitten, twice shy, or maybe like many times bitten, even more times shy with uh, the way Marvel does things. Hopefully the actual explanation to this will be a lot more interesting. I mean, it would almost have to be. So Kitty slash Kate is going to take me a little bit of time to get used to. I didn't dislike it. It's just kind of jarring. In fairness, I mean, I've been totally transparent with the fact that I did skip most of the Blue and Gold era and the latest volume of Uncanny. So I may have missed some character development and evolution there that would make this seem a little bit less extreme than it actually sort of feels like. I, I, I will always uh, <laughs> do my best to be honest about what I know and what I don't know And uh, what happened to Kitty Kate over the past couple of years is something I don't know Let's talk the Hellfire Trading Company Awesome idea uh, It finally makes the Mutant Miracle Drug feel like a you know front and center story thread I feel like it hadn't been adequately explored up to this point in Hoxpox, Pox uh, So I'm very happy to see it here being fleshed out Having Kitty and her crew in charge of, you know, the uh, black market is a very clever idea. And, I mean, if you're looking for a hook to hang this series on, that's that's a that's a heck of a hook. That's a good one. Um, in the build-up here, we had the back and forth between Kitty and Emma. That felt right. I look forward to more, especially if there comes a time where Kitty does take a seat at the Quiet Council table. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone I think that could be very, very interesting, um, and uh, just seeing the way she will interact with the rest of the council will be uh, will be a lot of fun. I think. I think her voice would be very unique in that situation, or among those folks. As for the rest of the Marauders, what can I say? This is a fun little team. This is a really fun little team. Um, Storm. Doesn't feel like she's got a stick up her butt Which is a welcome change of pace for her Iceman and Pyro being on the same team I mean, that opens up a lot of interesting possibilities Both in story and comedy You know, this could be very, very silly Uh, Now, Bishop, despite, you know, being part of the cast He hasn't yet sailed with the crew yet But I suppose we can assume he eventually will Like I said, this is a fun little team And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where they're headed with this I can't for the life of me Figure out why I didn't read the second issue When I bought it last year Because this, this was a hell of a lot of fun um, Now sticking with Bishop The uh, Taiwan scene was brief But it gave me those Those old fashioned bubbling subplot feels You know like uh, You think about the X-Men of the old Claremont days You know Where we know this scene It, it only gets a little bit of space here But you, we know it'll take center stage eventually uh, and we're just getting a taste of it, but it will get there, and it will take over. I feel like comics just aren't written this way so much anymore. Um, then again, I mean, this could all wind up paying off next issue. But uh, let's be optimistic. <laughs> you know, maybe, just maybe, we're getting a little taste of old-school serial comic storytelling here. And uh, at least for the moment, I'm very, very happy to see something like this. Overall... A great first issue. Uh, Marauders is a very strange concept, and like I said uh, at the outset, here it feels like it might wind up being like the odd dark horse favorite of the line. Uh, a few of the folks I've talked to, and a few of the people who've written in, Marauders gets high marks just about everywhere you you look. Where I, I don't know exactly which books are you know being considered the. The uh, less living up to the potential of the line, but Morota's usually isn't come up in that conversation. Morota's is usually looked at as being as being a must read or a top tier. So I enjoyed it. Looking forward to more. Can't for the life of me figure out why I didn't read issue two in the fall last fall. But uh, we're uh, we're gonna call it right there. But before I let you go, I do have a wonderful piece of mail uh, in the uh, in the old mailbag here from Jason Colby. I think either the last episode Or the one before that uh, I said that he was going to be sending His uh, his notes and his his Thoughts on uh, Hox Pox and the rollout So, So happy to see it here And can't wait to dig into it He starts, hi Chris, it's been fun Reliving the experience of reading Hickman's Big X takeover through your reactions These books were the first time I'd really dived into the X world In real time as it was Being published and that's oddly something i've heard a few times now and i find it so interesting that it was this run that that's that so so different uh, in in aesthetics and um, import you know that 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 inspired folks to dive in um, i think that's very very interesting you know, if if this was your jumping on point for the X Men overall, or or you know, even just in real time, just not reading the the classic stuff, uh, past you know, from the past, I'd love to hear reasons why this was what drew you in. Um, I've heard a few things. Uh, just it's very interesting to me because uh, oddly enough. It's kind, of, it's kind of the position I was in coming back. I, I didn't pay attention to Hoxpox, Pox, uh, but with the new X-Men number one, the Dawn of X books, it pulled me back in a big way, and I, I can't even think of why. I, I don't have any reasons why it did. It was just... It just felt like something I, I should be a part of. So it's, it's very interesting to me. Uh, back to Jason's mail. It says, The Hawks and Pox bo- books were, as you now know, quite a shock. They felt very different from a typical DC or Marvel book They felt like they had something to say They felt like the products of an individual mind That had thought very deeply about these characters for a long time And had made very specific, very considered decisions about what he wanted to say They were packed full of ideas, nearly full nearly to bursting I didn't always like every choice Hickman made, hated some of them, but each decision felt like it had been made intentionally with a specific predetermined purpose in mind. Agree 100%. Whether I personally agreed with the bits of the story or not, everything did feel meaningful and purposeful. I I did mention that the far-flung future felt a little bit um, head in its bum (laughs) and self-satisfied, but... Everything was with a purpose. that I cannot argue. Uh, Jason continues. We all have our own heuristics for what makes a comics purchase worth it. For me, if in the days and weeks after the few minutes it takes for me to read through a comic for the first time, I still find my, I find myself still thinking about it, that comic was a worthwhile purchase. By that metric, Hawks and Pox are among the biggest bargains I ever picked up, even though I paid full price for them on comiXology. I thought about them on my own. I participated in the online discussions and speculations about them as they came out. And now I'm thinking about them all over again as I relive the series along with you. And dude, that is an awesome way to assign value to a comic, and... honestly, not one I ever thought of. Um, that's really... That is super cool Um, I never thought of that And it really, it might make me change The way I judge thump, judge a comic As being worthy I mean, I've read I've read stuff that, uh, that is stuck With me, and, and a lot of this is stuck With me And by that same token Or on the other side of that coin Um, there are probably books I hold in esteem that I Never gave a second thought to <laughs> Which is weird no, that's, that's not that This is why I love this feedback section here Because I, I, it really opens my mind up To just different points of view And uh, I feel like I'm learning a lot <laughs> Just by talking with, uh, with folks About uh, the way they view things And the way uh, Just all of our individual prisms, you know um, I think judging a comic's worth by what you get out of it in as far as uh, interaction and participation and and it just taking up space in your mind because you, you, you can't you you don't want to let it go. That's an awesome that's an awesome metric. Uh, that that's super cool. i I'm, and I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to use that myself. Uh, Jason continues and that's where the post hox pox books haven't quite lived up to their beginnings. They almost couldn't. There are just so many books by so many authors that a singular focus isn't there and really isn't possible. That's a very good point, and I'm going to expand on that after Jason's next point. I know that Hickman, as head of X, is overseeing all of these, but that arm's length relationship to those books necessarily dilutes what he can put into them. There are still some interesting ideas here, but those ideas aren't quite as big and are parceled out more stingily by authors who need to fill reams of pages with limited supply of imagination. In short, the ongoings feel less like the expression of an inspired, passionate artist and more like standard, normal, typical 21st century Marvel comic books. And when I'm done reading one, I'm a lot less likely to keep thinking about it after that last page has been turned now a little bit behind the curtain here This is actually something I was a little worried about When I decided to continue this show past the initial 12-part event If we go back to Hoxpox, Pox With each and every issue and each and every episode We were building off what came before, right? We were, I mean, we had predictions that were being built upon And And contradicted, and everything was building We were just, we were building this beautiful house You know, from foundation to roof And every episode was a little bit more Love it or hate it, everything that was going on Was building toward something Here, with the regular monthlies, however That feeling of urgency and growth It might not be there At least not necessarily, you know, maybe not entirely I mean, we're only two issues in at this point, so I can't say with any certainty, but you know, just like Jason said, it stands to reason that the dawn of X books will not be able to live up to what to what came before. There are too many voice too many different voices, and honestly, probably two or three too many books overall. I mean it's it's hard to keep, as as Jason put it perfectly, that focus and I mean, every book has its own goal where hawks and Pox there was one goal you know it was that there was one story being told between those two and they fed into each other almost flawlessly i didn't love everything but it they fed into each other and we were building every step of the way we were building here and i don't have any kind of uh, <laughs> in knowledge of what comes after you know excalibur but it's almost impossible when you have six books that are going to inflate into, like, eight to keep that sort of razor-sharp focus. And uh, we're just going to play it, though. We're going to keep going. <laughs> we're going to keep going. Uh, back to Jason's message. So he says, don't get me wrong, they're not bad, exactly. Well, most of them aren't. They're just less extraordinary, and Jonathan Hickman whet my appetite for the extraordinary. No doubt. No Doubt, and that's a perfect way To say it Now I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where things are Going, and uh, I, I, I really hope uh, To Jason and everybody We can continue this conversation as more and more Pieces fall into place here, because I think uh, we, Maybe we'll need the moral support To keep going But, uh, but I, I, I definitely want to see Because we are all So different, and uh, You know, just like I Absolutely adored this issue of Marauders There very well could be someone listening right now Who said who said to themselves Marauders was an awful book You know I can get the Fallen Angels number 4 and be like Ugh, What am I still reading this for But that might be someone's favorite So I, I love the conversation and the discussion Just seeing what all of us like And what all of us don't like And, and how that uh, How we're different and how we're the same That's uh, That's a lot of fun to me um, now, back to, the, uh, back to the email He says, so that's my big picture reaction But now, on to some smaller, more specific bits First, the X to the third power timeline So, the year 1000 You're not alone in finding these bits less enthralling than the rest of the strands I'm certainly in the same boat These characters are harder to relate to, harder to give a damn about There is a purpose here, but it feels more academic in nature In my mind, and it may be only in my mind, the transfer of humanity into robots, which are then merged into a giant universal techno-brain, is meant to ask, what is the ultimate goal of a people, of humans, of mutants? Is Uplift winning or losing? Mora keeps living her life over and over like Bill Murray, trying to get it right. What is getting it right? What ultimate ending should she be aiming for? What's the point? What's the purpose? Do points and purposes even exist? These are, to understate just a little, big questions to be exploring in a book that's going to sit on the shelves next to Squirrel Girl and Spider-Ham. And I'm not sure Hickman pulls it off entirely successfully. Okay, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But I'm still thinking about it, and, as I said above, that counts as a win in my book. This is excellently stated. Excellently stated here. I mean... It, it let's look at the uh, you know the ultimate goal of of the uh, of the post humans uh, what, what is the goal there uh, the librarian even stops to consider what the goal is before you know before the end there too as far as mora I've talked about this over the past couple of episodes we we get this discussion that the x men always lose how do we define that how how does Maura know that what is what is winning what is losing it's it's very that's very interesting food for thought and um I think that's something that comics fans can discuss and debate you know going into going into infinity you know um i I've been questioning this myself i like, how do you define? I keep going back to, I think it was Maura's second life, where she dies in a plane crash. How, how did the X-Men lose there? You know, uh, what... what it, and now, we have, you know, the, the, in her tenth life, we got rid of the mother mold, but we don't know if that's the only life we got rid of the mother mold, so is that winning? Uh, what's right? What's wrong? That's... You, you're, you're asking the perfect questions, and... Uh, I don't know. It's 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 some very very heady stuff here, and it's very interesting to to parse out and consider. Um, back to uh, back to the email. Resurrection. I think this is a truly interesting choice. Comic books have be, have made death meaningless. This is known. Jane Foster didn't even have time to achieve room temperature before being, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands into the new Valkyrie. But this book hangs a lampshade on the meaninglessness of a comic book death and says, okay, now that's off the table, and we're going to create drama from other less devalued sources. That's a strong choice. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I think the way I put it in episode 12 was something along the lines of, like, not necessarily lessening the stakes, but just changing them. Like, uh, we're not going to worry about death anymore. We're going to worry about other things. You know, the... The uh, the scenery, the trappings. We're gonna worry about that stuff. We're gonna we're gonna play with those concepts rather than the literal lives and deaths of characters. Because, as stated, you know, what is death in a comic book? It's just not it's not something that's taken seriously. It, uh, it and it's to this point. It's been overused so much that it's not. I don't even think it's something that really pops a uh, a decent buy rate anymore because it's just. It's done too much. Um, It used to be done for shock, and now you know the law of diminishing returns. There ain't no shock anymore. So this is, as Jason put it, a very strong choice because we're going to be playing with different things here, and that's awesome. Uh, Back to uh, back to the email. One religious-slash-philosophical philosoph- idea related to the resurrection hasn't gotten the attention I hoped it would, and that's, are the resurrected mutants really, truly the same people who died? They have identical bodies and the same DNA, and have been imprinted with the most recent backup of a person's memories, but does that make them the same person? Does the soul hop over into this new vessel the way a person might put on a new suit to replace one that was worn out at the elbows? Were the heroic sacrifices made by Logan and Kurt to destroy the the mother mold not really heroic because they weren't really sacrifices, because they weren't really dead? Or are those Logan and Kurt actually dead? But now we have some shiny new ones to replace replace them the way parents might buy a distraught child a new identical pair of goldfish to replace the ones just flushed off into the hereafter. I don't think Hickman is interested in this idea... Or at least, or at the very least, doesn't want us to be distracted by it. He uses words like essence and anima, and rushes along into the bits of the story he prefers. It's the only place where I feel like we're getting hand waving instead of actual thought. Awesomely put, awesomely put. Um, and if I were a more eloquent speaker, I would try to (laughs) to offer up my opinion there. But you're 100% dead on. Um, the thing that got me was how quick the Krakowans were to accept this. You know, as Storm is doing her, you know, her Catholic Mass there, or her, not even Catholic Mass, her, her culty Mass, uh, where she's, you know, yelling out into the crowd here and everybody's accepting this. It just seems so strange. Uh, it's, it's uncanny. You know, it's very, very odd that they're just so willing. They're so brainwashed into accepting that this is the uh, the new normal, and nobody's asking these questions. We're not even getting a character asking these questions and being hand waved away. We're just not getting the question. Um, I don't know if this will ever be dealt with. I hope it is. I. I but then again, I mean, these next issues could change everything. I don't know because. Uh, because I just don't know. Um, it's very your points here are very very interesting here because we think about we just talked about how we're removing death from the equation, right? How that's become such a such a non thing. But we are still dealing with heroes here, and you know, part of being heroic is making sacrifices or putting yourself in a position where a sacrifice might be made. And do are we making these characters lesser heroes by by making them I don't know how to put it. Um by making them making things less final, making things making these decisions to put yourself into a dangerous situation so much easier to make because you know, jumping back to those stakes, there just aren't any. Nightcrawler pops Wolverine out to that arm so he can start cutting the collar off the, the mother mold if not for this resurrection gimmick that would have been a truly heartbreaking scene but now looking back it was uh you know it was like that video game lemmings you know just just another one stepping off the cliff but there's a million more behind it it's it does kind of ch- reframe the concept of the x-men as heroes because they're uh yeah because they they don't need to be As careful, and they don't need to think quite as hard about the decisions they have to make Very, very interesting stuff here Really interesting stuff Um, A lot more interesting than I thought initially (laughs) It's uh, very, very cool Um, uh, Jason goes on to say, for what it's worth, the Star Trek transporters have always made me ask the same questions Yes, Kirk was there, and now he's here, but is it the same Kirk? Like, really the same Kirk? And how would we know if it weren't? And does it matter? It didn't to Roddenberry, and it doesn't, at least so far, to Hickman. And I don't know a whole lot about Star Trek, but uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, your point is very well taken. Uh, back to the message. Uh, Namor agreed the one page we see of Chuck E. X. meeting with the King of Atlantis was just splendid. Namor may be the finest character in all of Marvel. I really like the way he was used in the semi-recent Invaders book by Chip Zarsky. I think it's Zadarsky. I I think he does a book later on. I think he does X-Men Fantastic Four. So I'm going to have to learn to say his name by then. And I recommend that to any of my fellow fans of the wing-footed Submariner who may have missed it when it came out. And uh, I'm one of those people. I didn't even know there was an Invaders run. Um, I feel like around the time of Marvel now, there were like four or five (laughs) Invaders volumes that they put out, and none of them caught fire. But uh, I might have to check this one out. If, uh, if Namor uh, is such a player in it, for sure. Um, next, we go to wild speculation. Jason says, It's been a blast hearing you make educated guesses and take wild swings as you made your way through these series. They certainly invite it. I can tell you that some of your bets have been dead on, some have been way off, and a good chunk of them have yet to be seen. I want to share with you my own wildest speculation that I had during my first read. I, too, was suspicious of the identity of the alleged Charles Xavier, who was running the show while never showing his head. I looked at the way he was drawn. I looked at the choices he was making. I looked at the way he was getting everyone around him to choose to do his bidding. I looked at the unusual for Marvel way all the word bubbles in these books were being lettered. Christopher, I thought Charles Xavier was really the maker. Christopher, I was wrong. I guess this counts as a spoiler, but alas, my personal credibility and bragging rights The new mutant homeworld of Krakoa is not being controlled by an evil alternate, ultimate universe version of Reed Richards And, wow, I haven't thought of the maker in, like, forever Like, ten years, fifteen years, I haven't thought of the maker Uh, the maker is, you know, Reed Richards in the ultimate universe Just, a uh, evil And it's one of the very few bits of the Ultimate Universe I really, really enjoyed simply because it wasn't just a retread of an ages old Marvel story. Um, I feel like the Ultimate line started off pretty strong, but then, like, within a year, it was like, okay, well, we had Spider Man do this, uh, you know, in 1960 something, so uh, how about we just update it? Uh, Okay, okay. Oh, we had a Clone Saga. Let's do a Clone Saga over here. Oh, we had Venom. Let's do Venom over here. Oh, we had the death of whoever over here. Let's do it over here. It just felt so samey. And uh, really, really t- took the wind out of my sails when it came to reading uh, anything <laughs> from The Ultimate Line, but turning Reed Richards into, like, the big bad of the universe, that's, that's a very interesting take, and I, I did enjoy that. And, you know, it would make a lot of sense. We got Hickman writing, and he's got a long history with Mr. Fantastic, and, you know, the character of the maker had a pretty similar look to uh, to the professor here, but complete with a helmet. So this is really a heck of a guess, and didn't make my list. But you know, that's this is a good guess, <laughs> a damn good guess. I, and to be completely honest, I'm really just happy to be learning more and more that I wasn't alone in assuming or suggesting that the man in the cerebro helmet wasn't Xavier. Because I was nervous about making those predictions because. I mean, everything we read told us it was him. But we didn't see his face, you know? He wasn't showing his face. He didn't show his head. Um, So I was just grasping. And he was acting bizarre. You know, everybody called him Xavier or Charles or Professor. But he was acting so bizarre and so out of character. And um, those were... I was I was really like considering not even making those predictions on the show because I thought I'd be uh, <laughs> thought I'd be hurting my my own credibility there, but uh, but I'm I'm so happy to hear that I that I'm not I'm learning more and more that I was not alone in that so that's very very cool. Uh, Jason wraps up his missive with that's all from me. So until Cerebro runs out of RAM, make mine x lapsed, and that made my day <laughs> to be to have a make mine uh, for the show. That made my day. That made my week. So thank you so much, Jason, for that, and thanks everyone for hanging out and uh, and you know dealing with me. Uh, <laughs> I very very much appreciate it. It's hard for me to put into words how much I appreciate it, but I I damn sure do. Now, if you'd like to reach out with any of your hot takes, any of your uh, feedback, definitely, definitely, please do so. Ace Comics on Twitter or Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find me at chrissoninfiniteearth.com or the newish xlapsed.chrissoninfiniteearths.com where it'll just be these shows. So none of the other stuff, just these shows in the order they're meant to be listened to. So if you're discovering this show and you want to go back, that might be the easiest way to do it, though the uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com isn't really all that messed up toward the tail end. So you might be able to go there and, uh, and get them just as well. But that's all from me today. One more time, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Big thanks to Jason for writing in. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.